Oftentimes the voice in our heads, I never, I always, she can't, I can, whatever it is, are actually not our voices. It's probably coming from somewhere else or someone else. Ready. Welcome to the Eat, Play, Crush podcast. I am your host, Mary Shinuda. Over my career as a performance chef and specialist to some of the most elite athletes and entertainers, I have found that the gap between what they do and what you can accomplish is much more relatable than we make it seem. Performance and wellness should be inclusive. And I believe that if you have a body, you're performing at some level, whether you're a world-class athlete or simply someone like you and me. And it goes far beyond just nutrition. So my aim with this podcast is to share real life stories and expert advice to inspire and make a difference so that you may eat well, play hard and crush life. Hi, Tim. Hi, how are you today? I am solid, a little intimidated interviewing you. (laughs) No need. You can fix it in post. That's the secret to my success. <laughs> fix it in post-production. Nerds and jokes aside, I really, really appreciate you doing this. It means a lot to me. And as I said, you were there right when I started. So this will be interesting for me. Yeah, trip down memory lane. I'm excited. Recently, I've heard you saying, you know, I'm not a writer. I'm a podcaster. You've got these other projects going. How would Tim introduce himself today? Good question. Good one to start off with. I would say aspiring teacher, teacher and aspiring teacher who wants his students direct and indirect to be better than he is. That's what I would say. I think whether it's podcasting, books, anything I do, I'm trying to take some product of self-experimentation, condense it in some fashion that makes it easier for more people to use and then transmit that. So I think that is medium agnostic. So I would say teacher. I always thought this is not something uh, I've mentioned, certainly not at any length, is I thought I was going to be a ninth grade teacher for a long time. I decided that, of course, I, I wanted to be in the world to do things before ever going back and teaching. I wanted to have some basis for sharing my life experience. But I always thought I was going to be a teacher in some fashion. So it's just turned out that I've accidentally meandered my way into doing it with different tools. So I would say I would say teacher and aspiring teacher. I still have plenty to learn. You definitely have taught by example. Something I think I've always appreciated about you is that you've always left room for the opportunity that you're wrong, which only makes you a better teacher. And that's something I picked up about you pretty early on. Um, Thank you. Which, going back to how we met, mm-hmm. 2012, for our chef had just come out. <laughs> and I actually have a photo of the first time that we met. And it was at, it was a happenstance for me because I had just said, fuck it, left corporate America to become a private <laughs> chef uh, in the performance mm-hmm. realm. And I just happened to catch a Facebook post that there was a little event happening for four hour chef and Mm -hmm. I have no culinary background. So I was like, Oh, let me go see what this is about. And it was so interesting because you were there to talk about four hour chef and the questions had very little to do with four hour chef in the room. Like everyone's (laughs) like, what are you investing in? What are you eating? And I was like, this is so interesting. (laughs) And, (laughs) and then shortly after that, I got 
an email from you to cook for you and for you and a, a group of gentlemen that were coming over. And this is where it gets interesting. You let me know that the dinner was really important, that uh, your assistant would be meeting me at the house, and that you would like to use the majority of the ingredients you have in the house, but that the primary protein was going to be a caribou that you hunted. Mm -hmm. And you didn't know this. I never cook caribou, whatever. (laughs) But (laughs) but I get there. I I cook caribou all the time (laughs) on it. I didn't lie. I just said, like, sure, no problem. Right. No problem. So, <laughs> so I get there. Moment number one, my experience with you, Tim, was, you know, you said caribou in the freezer, no big deal. I open the freezer and there's two legs <laughs> of a caribou in there. <laughs> yeah. No warning. And I start cracking up. Should have given you, should have given you some, some, some advance notice on those. Yeah. <laughs> and my thought process, because I hadn't cooked caribou before, but... I cooked venison, I cooked bear, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go with a shepherd's pie because I can sit here and, and manipulate if it's gamey, if it's tough. And Mediterranean shepherd's pie is very different than traditional shepherd's pie that people are familiar with. So I'm in the kitchen doing my thing. You get there. We meet. Sup, sup. You retire to wherever you retire. Maybe your TP. That used to be in the living room. Don't know if you still have the oh, teepee. <laughs> yeah, no, I no longer have the teepee, a mini teepee that was gifted to me. And I didn't know what to do with it, but I did put it in my living room. I get some strange <laughs> gifts. It was quite, it was, it was very attractive. But yes, it was a teepee suitable for someone who's about two and a half feet tall. <laughs> but I am an intuitive cook. I'm an intuitive person in general. I really go off of how I feel and then filter it through whatever. So intuitive cooking means I am communing with what I'm cooking. And I had prepared it, the shepherd's pie. I was also doing something called an ugly duckling salad and uh, chocolate mousse and all of it was paleo. But I'm I'm in the oven having a conversation with the caribou, not realizing that you've just stepped into the kitchen. (laughs) And I was telling the caribou, I really hope you turn out okay. And then you go, excuse Excuse me, and I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> what's going on in here? <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, I've I've never prepared caribou before, and you're like, Mary, this is a you know, this is an important dinner, and I just remember putting my hand up and going like, it's cool, I I understand food, I just have never made caribou before, and you looked at me very skeptical, and or at least I I translated as skeptical, but when I think back on that. I think about how you put yourself in situations where you're the beginner and or something you haven't done before. And here I was doing the same thing, not to your satisfaction in the moment, at least. <laughs> However, you so guys cleared the, the food. Well, let me, I'll <laughs> give ahead. you also a peek, a peek under the hood. The peek under the hood is that I wasn't so much skeptical. I was afraid because I take any any animal that I harvest so seriously. And this was my first caribou from the Brooks Range in Alaska. And I just didn't want it to possibly go to waste, which it didn't. You killed it. Well, I guess I killed it you and then you cooked it. it. And, it <laughs> and it turned out really well. And the recipe was the right recipe, as you noted, right? For a protein that you haven't worked with, especially one that is pretty lean, as is caribou. And yeah, we cleaned it. I mean, we completely 
cleared so it. Wiped, wiped the table and all the all the plates clean. It's a great meal. I love that insight because that is how I approach anything that I cook. Is that it's with thoughtfulness um, for the sacrifice. Uh, when I do bigger pop ups. Mm-hmm. I will be very quiet, sometimes just weeping, saying a prayer, and everyone's like whizzing by me, like, is she okay? And I'm like, I just I just need a moment for the very real thing that this is a sacrifice for us. So I, I actually really love that that was the actual real reason why you gave me <laughs> that look. Yep, that was, <laughs> yep, that was it. That was it. I still take it super seriously, super, super seriously. And I think it's a good layer of context for anyone to possibly add to their lives. It doesn't have to be through hunting, but it could be through gardening, but getting a better understanding of just how much energy goes into and life force of some type goes into what you consume that keeps you alive. It gives you a lot more appreciation. I grew up, as I I may have mentioned when (laughs) you're cooking the caribou, I grew up disliking hunters, having really a uh, strong dislike of hunters because I grew up in this particular area on Long Island where guys would drink like two six packs and go into a tree stand and shoot these deer and injure them. They'd end up like all messed up. But doing the four hour chef, I was like, all right, if I'm going to have any opinion on food, I probably should actually be required to do things from start to finish. <laughs> and uh, you did a great job. Yeah, tip for people, you have more tips, but I'll just say tip for people who are working with really lean meat, especially if it's, uh, and this is a controversial term, but let's just call it clean, meaning you don't anticipate it's exposed to pesticides or parasites and so on. You got to be very careful with bear. I'm impressed that you did bear before caribou. That's wild. But uh, for instance, I'm going to cook axis deer tonight. And the advice I got from a guy named Jake Muse was treat it more like tuna than steak. And I was like, huh, okay, interesting. Uh, but the shepherd's pie was outstanding. So still give that double thumbs up. You were interviewed a few weeks later and you said when they asked you what your last meal would be was a caribou shepherd's pie. And I'm like, obviously that's me. (laughs) Boom. Yeah. I hadn't had, uh, I didn't, I didn't have a second serving of caribou shepherd's pie (laughs) in the intervening weeks. Talking about the four hour chef and how that didn't do well. And Right after that, the attempt at the show, which mm-hmm. could say also didn't do well, but you use yeah. that as a pivot. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you brought up the show again or if people remember it. Obviously, remember it because I saw you break your body in more yeah, ways than one was, during that. Oh my god! So so many bad decisions. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but but they they led you somewhere. And part of Eat Play Crush podcast is these moments in life where you were crushed. You were quite literally crushed with the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything with either of those that you? would do differently? Like, is there any world where, I mean, obviously we'll never know, but is there anything you would have done differently with either the show or 4-Hour Chef? There are, I would say, very few things that I would change when I think about the past in these terms, just because I worry about stepping on the butterfly that would then interfere with some other great things that have occurred. However, for people who don't have this, the ceramic connective tissue on this time frame for me, 2011 to 2013 was the roughest time in my life in 13 to 15 years. It was just a brutal stretch of time. And that was for a whole lot of reasons, but I had 
run myself ragged on basically a suicide mission with the deadline for four hour chef four hour chef was through Amazon publishing. It was this new entity that publishers and retailers boycotted very heavily, big mess. And then the TV show also was done with a startup within a, a larger company. And then that got shelved. So things went in the vault still alive. I hope to have some news about that footage actually oh, amazing. in the next few months. So stand by folks. But in the process, as you alluded to, did a few things that I would change. At least one. The one I would change, and the one that you got to see the after effects of, is I would not have done the parkour episode the way that I did it. So I did a parkour episode, for those who don't know, there's this show, Tim Ferriss Experiment, each week, I would take on or attempt to take on a new skill of some type, and then I would have some grueling test at the end of it. And uh, there's actually a woman, I'm blanking on her name right now, who's doing an incredible variation of this type of theme, because I'm not the first person to do this. There are many other people, George Plimpton and others, who have done this type of kind of immersive journalism. There's a woman, I'm blanking on her name, but she has a YouTube series called Challenge Accepted that is an absolutely fantastic execution on this type of immersive challenge theme. In any case, in the parkour episode, <laughs> it turns out that jumping off of high things can do damage <laughs> to your legs. And I tore three of my four quadriceps muscles on, on each leg. And that was the first episode that we recorded out of 13 back to back. So <laughs> it was a big problem. And uh, honestly, I only in the last year or so have undone, to some extent, a lot of the scar tissue and consequences of that episode. Are you serious? So I probably it's taken changed that, that long? Yeah, it's taken that long. And yeah, terrible, right? So uh, it turns out you are not in, <laughs> completely uh, impervious to uh, long term injury. And I would change that. With respect to the four hour chef, I don't regret making the decision the way I made the decision to work with Amazon Publishing because when looking back, I, I try, and I'm not always great at it, but some something akin to a good poker player, I try to look at good decision-making and bad decision-making, not just good and bad outcomes. So I think my decision-making was good. Like The upside was very high. I think I underestimated the downside risk in some respects, because I, I didn't realize that outside of the book world, even maybe the Costco's and so on would also bulk and that it would potentially upset the New York Times. And I, I did not foresee these things. But uh, in retrospect, I would have dramatically constrained the book to probably be a small section for those people who don't know, because the four hour chef is my least successful, but in some ways least successful book commercially, but this is still wall street journal, number one and New York times number four. Uh, but it's probably the book that I'm proudest of on some level, because it's really four books in one, which is not mm -hmm. great for marketing, by the way, if anyone's going to be doing a book, <laughs> don't do four books in one. It's actually very, confusing but it's an incredible book. It's so dense Thank and, you. and it's more, it's more than just cooking. Yeah, it's a book on accelerated learning, which is is very, I think, confusing, and it requires too much explanation. So the premise of the book, even though it works in the book, was very hard to convey. Uh, however, if that book hadn't burned me out, I wouldn't have started the podcast, 
Right. If I had changed, say, the publication date and I pushed it out a few years, I also would have missed a critical window that at the time didn't seem critical, but this window to launch a podcast when there was very little competition, respectively, to compared to today. So the, the only thing that immediately jumps to mind is, man, that parkour episode. God bless you guys and <laughs> gals who do that stuff. It is so hard on the body. Oh, my lordy. So that's that's the one that, that comes back. I think there are things I could have done to minimize the physical and emotional toll that the 4-Hour Chef took on me personally. But if I were to go back and do that, I'm not sure the podcast would have happened. Right. And there's something to be said about that toll breaking you open in other ways. Yeah. So on top of the physical and emotional stress of that book, and, and we can we can talk about this if you'd like, but during that period of time, also that exact same time frame, I was contending with the first time I made a concerted effort to contend with childhood sexual abuse. And something had to give. <laughs> and uh, it was an incredibly hard time uh, for a period of, I suppose, the three years that I mentioned. And it continued to be challenging in a lot of ways. I didn't just figure it out and here's the silver bullet and, and then you're done. But that was the beginning of a healing journey. And the front-loaded portion of it was really hard, especially with all of those other factors combined. And I was coming to the end of a long-term relationship and there was just, there was, there was a lot. It was a lot. Uh, coming down at once. Yeah. And I do have to say from my seat, you did handle it really well. And by well, I mean, you were really kind to everyone around you. At least you're always really kind to me. And there's only, there's pieces of that I didn't realize until much later that was happening. And if I think back on how you showed up for spaces. Like you've always been a kind person, incredibly kind, but it, you handled it. I, I, I struggle to say well, cause you know how people say like, you're so strong. And if you've been through your, like, I don't want to fucking yeah. be strong, but like you, yeah. you, you carried it in a way that's like you carried compassion. And I think I, I mentioned this before we started recording, hearing your voice. Cause I'm, I'm a very, when I say sensitive, I pick up on things. I don't know if you know this, but I did bereavement counseling um, as a volunteer, mm. as a teenager. I did not know that. Makes sense, though, for me, having spent time with you. Like, it makes sense that, that that you would operate well in that environment. Your voice has always been kind to others. I didn't feel like your voice was always as kind as it could be to itself. And getting caught up on a lot of podcasts over the last week preparing for this, it's given me so much joy to hear that kindness turn inward. Mm, thank you for saying that. Thank you. I'm just letting that land because I usually don't let things land. Or I'd say historically, I'm trying to change the wording I use around these things because I think it's important. Past tense. Uh, really haven't let things land. And also, you just made me think of something that I've never said, which is it takes for all, the vast majority I think of humans on this planet a long time to learn how to love other people in the way they want to be loved. So if you're tough on yourself and it's taking you time to learn how to taking you time to reflect that back inward, be easy on yourself. Like it's, it's, it doesn't have to happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight for other people. So just have, if you can, 
some patients with developing that skill as well. Certainly for me, it's a work in progress, but man, oh man, if you look at me of the 2012 vintage, holy shit, man. Yeah, that was guy great was too, though. worst enemy. But he yeah, was he was great. great. He was great. <laughs> he was he was he was great. But man, the battles that he was fighting on a like weekly basis, internally, brutal, really, really brutal. And so I'm trying to do less of that. <laughs> so thank you for saying that. This episode is brought to you by LiveCap, a carefully crafted probiotic with a primary focus on oxygen optimization, which can help improve your gut health, nutrient absorption, immune system function, and overall wellness. I have a bit to say here, so stick with me as this is not your average sponsor read to just skip over. Many of you have probably gotten used to living in discomfort and can relate to the common factors that weaken your gut, such as stress, disrupted sleep, diet choices, environmental changes, and intense training. Formulated by a pioneer in the gut microbiome and brought to market by a 20-year gastroenterologist, LiveCap was created for athletes, weekend warriors, and everyday health enthusiasts, which chances are if you're listening to my podcast, you fall into one of those categories. Before I was introduced to LiveCap, I would suggest staying on top of your probiotic consumption simply through fermented foods because I wasn't all that stoked on any particular products on the market. But after my first call with Dr. Davies, their founder, I was fired up in the same way I would get fired up about going into the playoffs with one of my athletes, just for some context on how much of a gut health nerd I am. I immediately began testing both of their products, Strong and Elite, with my clients, testing it with myself, with my EPC team members, and even family members over the course of several months. Across the board, everyone's feedback was positive, from my assistant having lifelong bloat being relieved, to my athletes having increased endurance, to my client having more focus in his meetings, to my sibling having reduced soreness in their legs. It sounds spread out in terms of experiences, but when you dive into the science and mechanism of LiveCap and what I touched upon about oxygen optimization, it all connects. I asked to officially partner with Dr. Davies and LiveCap to champion the product to whomever I can reach. Now, my producer begged that I not get any more sciency than I already have in this read. So to learn more about LiveCap and our partnership, visit eatplaycrush.com. There are two products, like I mentioned, one that is available to anyone and one that is only available to athletes and currently exclusively through my website. It is a higher priced probiotic by comparison to what you're probably used to seeing on the market. But once you dig into the science behind it, you will see this is definitely worth fitting into your gut health budget. Check out the show notes for a direct link to get live cap or visit eatplaycrush.com to learn more. Something that I struggle with that somebody asked me recently, and I think it may apply and tell me it doesn't, is the juxtaposition of joy and happiness, chasing achievement, and then a little bit of that self-loathing and that self-work. If you could give it a ratio, and the question was asked to me is, have you, have you ever, Mary, have you ever sat down and really enjoyed what you've accomplished, like really felt happy about it for more than like the moment? And, and I was like, no, bro. Like, why are you asking me such violent questions right now? <laughs> but if there is a shift, one, is there a shift? And two, if you could break it down into a percentage 
um, for sake of understanding, what's the ratio of like absolute pure, honest joy you felt back then versus being able to really let joy sink in now after this decade of, of work? And I asked that to exemplify that if someone prones towards depression, which it's something I, I do, mm-hmm. that hope is an interesting word for me because I heard a quote when I was mm-hmm. in high school that haunted me. Hope is the worst of all evils for it prolongs the torment of man. <laughs> but, oh, that's <laughs> awful. That <laughs> so is I don't so, know. <laughs> so, that's so, so hardcore. <laughs> so hardcore. So faith. To give, give people yeah. faith that sometimes it does take a long time to get to the beginning. Sometimes the faith is what gets you there and it takes time and attention. So I, I, I want to give people who feel like it's never going to end or never going to go away that the cloud is a, a, cho- a choice. There's a lot of directions that can take this, but mm-hmm. that before and after. Yeah, I can and during. Uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me let me try to to do my best to tackle that, and I think the way I'll approach it is by grabbing something that is a daily reminder. I'm just going to pick it up, and I'll show you what it is. Okay, so this was a gift to me, and I'm not sure if you can read that. It might be a little weird, but it says, "Yeah, it's going to probably fuck up the recording because of the." It is a <laughs> it is a carved. Or a laser etched piece of metal that can be worn as a bracelet. I have it attached to my keychain that says, The struggle ends when the gratitude begins. And that is a quote, I believe, from Neil Donald Walsh, N E A L. I believe someone can correct me, I'm sure, if it isn't. But I would say that my past attempts to say, Be optimistic instead of pessimistic have largely failed my attempts to embrace faith, probably also because of some of the connotations of that word that have more religious overtones, have mostly failed. So if I think about, say, faith over fear, which in theory I like a lot, it's been difficult for me to implement. But what I have found is, short answer to your question, is my ability to let joy in and to accept love, which doesn't have to be over-the-top romantic love or effusive friend love, but just someone who wishes you well. Accepting that and allowing yourself to bask in that is something that I experienced 10x, 100x compared to 2012. I mean, there's no there's no comparison. And I would say that the the reason I let in with a few things that have not worked for me is that if I focus on, say, fixing depressive tendencies, so I've had many depressive episodes, so has my father, this is something that runs in the family. If I focus on fixing a problem, uh, as I was once told by a very experienced therapist, he said, there's a thin line between doing the work in quotation marks and picking on yourself. Very thin line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If instead I, and I'm not saying you don't try to address these things, but if you focus on really carving out time to appreciate the little things, I'll give you a great example. You talking to your food, 
right? I never experienced any equivalent of grace growing up, meaning grace before a meal, any kind of blessing of any type. And one of the takeaways from my experience with the four hour chef, I would always stop and I would deeply smell my food. And I began basically experimenting with different scripts, like different ways of talking to myself or talking to things I was grateful for, for 30 seconds before every meal. You're already going to eat. So you can take 30 seconds. It's not a laborious new behavior. And by layering in these little moments, these little breaks, I think something like a very short meditative practice, 10, 20 minutes in the morning, also just getting accustomed to a bit of a pause can allow these things to start to seep in that can change your orientation a bit. So that's that's been certainly one facet of my approach. And it's still, just to be clear, I have bad days, I have hard days. But the really dark days have been fewer and fewer, especially in the last, especially in the last 10 years, I would say, on top of that, especially in the last five years. And on top of that, I would say particularly in the last 12 months, if you were to talk to my closest friends who spent a lot of time with me. Uh, they notice things that I don't because I'm kind of like the boiling frog, right? I don't notice <laughs> the incremental, <laughs> tiny daily changes, but they do if they're seeing me at these intervals. So mm-hmm. those are a few thoughts. For me, it's because um, I slant towards that and I have good seasons and bad seasons. And I don't want to say bad, like really rough seasons, but I've made peace with it. And um, I was asked on a podcast like, how do you make yourself feel better? And I'm like, look, sometimes for me to feel good, I just have to feel bad. Explain that for me. The more I try to or, sometimes- Let me rephrase that. Please say yes. more. Explain that to me. <laughs> sounds way too judgy. I'll correct myself. I'll catch it. Please tell me, please tell me more about that. I've had a hyper-awareness since I was a child. Like the memories I have don't even make sense of the age. Like my mom's like, you were still a baby. How do you remember that room? We didn't live there when you were older. So this awareness and the sensitivity compounded by multiple traumas starting from age eight, nine, going through into my 20s. I'm I'm very sensitive and also slant towards this heaviness. And it's not a, I want to kill myself, but sometimes, you know, just don't really want to be here. And rather than fight that or try to fix it, I just accept it as the juxtaposition of life and the spectrum of life. And if I sometimes try to run away from it, hide it, or optimize it, if you will, it either makes it worse or makes it come back 10 times worse later. So I treat it as though I'm being kind to a friend and I just let myself feel bad and it gets me closer to feeling good. And as someone who slants towards being a soloist and I go to therapy, I have therapists, I've been fired by a couple of therapists who say I'm a little too cerebral for them. And I'm like, damn it, (laughs) (laughs) the abandonment issue is here on a whole other level. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I came to that in order to feel good or better. I just have to feel bad. Um, it was right after I moved to Los Angeles and it was after a conversation you and I had, but I was driving to a client's house. I was like, oh my God, did I make a huge mistake? I'd left corporate America. I moved to LA with no plan, da, 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 da. And I wanted to write something down, but I couldn't. So I stuck my phone in my bra strap 
and started journaling to myself, just like talking out loud, saying whatever. Got to my client's house, did what I needed with my client. And then on the drive back, I decided to listen to what I had to say. And I had to pull over fully crying because I was forced to listen to myself as though I'm listening to a friend mm-hmm. and yeah. see where I struggle. What I and, and I got to the end of this and it was lots of rambles, some dark stuff, some fun stuff, some like relationship stuff. And I said, how can I be so grateful for everything externally if I'm not grateful for everything internally? Yeah. And then I got that whole, I need to feel bad to feel good. And then I meditated on that and then re-recorded. I found out later on that actually will help chemically alter the brain. A friend of mine, fr- friend of mine who's a neuroscientist was, uh, was like, oh, that's a method from the 70s. It's so interesting that you came to that. Hmm. But that's how I came to, to that idea for myself. And it helps me not manage, but surf those, yeah. those harder times. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's so individual. Uh, and that's something that is hard for me to sometimes account for because I can only speak from direct experience from my own experience. And what mm-hmm. works for me is not going to work for everybody. I do think there are some commonalities. I mean, we share more in common than we, than we differ, but there are so many different modalities if, say, you're experiencing depressive episodes as, as your nature or perhaps a product of nurture or both. For me, I, I will just share this and it may not apply that I have come to similar conclusions for myself in the past. It's like, okay, if I want to experience the highs, I'm going to experience the lows. And that's my hypersensitivity where I think that can get mistranslated into action for me. I'm not only speaking about myself personally is that I end up becoming like a pain seeking missile because I view that as a prerequisite to some type of experiencing of the highs or proof that I am grinding hard enough Mm. given the advantages that I have, Mm. if this makes any sense, right? Like I feel like I should be doing more. I have a moral obligation to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least in my case, that has led to, I think during the four hour chef, this was true a bit of uh, not quite martyrdom because I'm not looking to be celebrated by anyone else. It's more of a, a heaviness of obligation that I think has produced a lot of unnecessary suffering for me. So for me, again, I'm only saying this for me personally, I've, I've really tried hard to shift my orientation from where it was for decades, which was, I don't need to hear about the good stuff. Like for instance, working with employees or partners or whatever it might be like, just tell me what's not working and we'll fix that. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff that's going great is taking care of itself. So we don't really need to spend a lot of time on that. And I've really revised my thinking on that in the last handful of years, because this is going to sound maybe a little out there to folks, but it's, uh, if you really zoom out and there's actually a great book called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman that I recommend to everyone. I think the subtitle is Time Management for Mortals, something like that. Excellent book. And it does a great job of zooming out just to put a lot of what we take as important in perspective. But it's like at the end of the day, and Ed Cook, who's a friend who's been on my podcast as well, he's like, at the end of the day, we're monkeys on a spinning rock. And in geological time, like whatever we're really concerned about right now just is probably not going to matter a year from now, maybe five years, but certainly not a thousand years from now in the grand scheme of things. 
And the celebrations matter. The little celebrations really, I suck think, at that. Yeah, I mean, I was ta- I was talking to a an executive coach because I still seek out people who can look at me with and my behaviors and beliefs with fresh eyes, right? Because it's it's uh, if you're so in the weeds as we all are with our own stuff, it's kind of like the uh, the commencement speech from David Foster Wallace, uh, where you know the two young fish swim by the old fish, and the old fish is like, "How's the water, boys?" And they're like, "What is water?" Um, <laughs> And so you, so outside parties can be helpful, but he was saying to me, all of his clients who are CEOs or entrepreneurs, he's like, they're all bad at celebrating 201 every single I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse (laughs) to be honest. It makes me feel better because I'm, (laughs) because I'm, I'm prone to picking on myself as being uniquely flawed and on a half dozen or dozen or dozens of ways. I find it reassuring that with certain practices. For instance, like you were talking about recording with your iPhone or your phone in your bra strap. Number one, the first thing I thought of was like, man, I wish I could, I, I guess these days I could, I could wear a bra strap. <laughs> sounds really, <laughs> sounds really, sounds really convenient. But the, the second was that I'd never thought of it in this way perhaps before, but when you do something like morning pages or journaling, it also helps you to do the same thing. But the way that you phrased it was really was really observant. That is, you're looking at it as if you're looking at or listening to uh, a friend. And that that distance is really helpful. And I think that's that's part of why things like morning pages can be so helpful. So in any case, I was just going to say, I have tried very hard to grow things by paying attention to them. It's like, if you want more celebration, you got to pay attention to it, right? And how do you pay attention to it? In my case, if, I mean, this is going to sound so lame, but I I will put things like that into my calendar. It'll be like, celebrate ABC, blocked out for 30 minutes, right? It's not lame. It's not lame. (laughs) If it's not in my calendar, right? If these are behaviors that we have not been able to adopt over time, for me, I'm using the royal we, that I have repeatedly neglected. It's like, Put it in the calendar. If it's not in the calendar, it's not real. Put it in the calendar. Uh, so, this, so those are those are a few things that have been helpful. I will say one other thing though that is, if you're really in a place of like a vortex, right, where you have a lot of thought loops that you're suffering from, and I have this experience, right, like I wake up and my mind's going crazy for some reason. And this I actually got from Tony Robbins. I want to give credit where credit is due. I don't know if it is originally his, but the sequence of state story strategy in that order has been a really helpful reminder. And I've written that at the top of a lot of my journals, which is just to say, like, if you try to come up with a strategy, like how to fix whatever you're experiencing, but you're in a bad state, you're going to come up Mm -hmm. with a disabling story. So like today, I, I had really intense back pain last night and I'm recovering from like decades of, of hard living and poor sports choices <laughs> and some, some genetic issues. Yeah, but I, yeah, I woke up kind of every 30 minutes after 2 a.m. And I'm tired today. And I had big plans, long to-do list, all these things I was going to knock out of the park. And at, at one point I was like, you know what? This is not conducive to, I wanted to show up well for this conversation. It was important to me. And I was like, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like do a sauna, hang outside, lay down, rest and recover. 
And I feel much better about that now than if I had tried to push a boulder uphill repeatedly, just staring at a laptop, wondering, what did I just do in the last 15 minutes for three hours straight? You can be long-term productive with a lot of off days. <laughs> so, I learned that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the other takeaways from a different uh, journal that I did, but it was video journal this time, was uh, coping with waking up with that state of anxiety. And I wrote outside outside of my bedroom door, I have a, a board, and I wrote on there, only keep what's yours. Meaning, let go of the what if, the anxiety, the sensitivity things around you. And if you really only keep what's yours, Mary, you're all right. I love that. I'll add one thing to that list, which is something I've thought about a lot that has helped tremendously for my whole meandering path over the last five to 10 years, which is oftentimes the voice in our heads or the voices in our heads and the stories and the beliefs, I never, I always, she can't, I can, whatever it is, are actually not our voices. There's things that we have absorbed from parents, from teachers, from coaches, from exes, from fill in the blank. So I really like that only keep what's yours, which would include like beliefs, right? Strong thoughts that you take to be true that you arrived at on your own. If you didn't, it's probably coming from somewhere else or someone else. Mm -hmm. For better or worse, I seem to avoid a lot of what would be deemed as like self-help books or particular podcasts. Because if I don't learn the lesson, even if it's the hard way, it doesn't stick. <laughs> so it is it is I don't know why I'm like this it probably would help me to to absorb more of that stuff but it is like you said if I arrive to it myself then it, somehow it seems more true but to your other point of not celebrating like I've accomplished especially in the last couple of years things that people work towards their entire freaking careers and don't even ever get to taste and I did not celebrate those things. Like in the moment, it was the craziest high. Like being in Boston when the Warriors won because I have a couple clients on the team. Like what? Like I've done this for a while. I've done this with athletes and other teams, but somehow magically to do it with my home team with some of the most generational players of our time, I had that moment. That moment, and then and then and then what? You didn't celebrate that, Mary? I went I went back to my hotel room early to sleep. Yeah. What is wrong with me? Well. <laughs> It can also be dislocated, right? I would say, so here, here's also what I've learned about myself. Like if you, if, if you're not good at celebrating, look, we, we can't be good at everything, right? And like some people are good at playing basketball. Some people are good at wrestling. Some people aren't good at sports at all, but they're good at something else. So I have found like, rather than just beating myself over the head, like a dumb ox, saying celebrate more dummy celebrate more dummy over and over again <laughs> if that were if if that were going to work it would have worked by now trying to get something on the calendar with people who are good at celebrating mm -hmm. is where it works so right it's like if i know something has happened or is going to happen it's like okay the day after or the week after whatever it is in my case right get a couple of friends who are really good at celebrating. They just have a default mm -hmm. high stoke factor and, <laughs> right? ha and have, have a long meal with those people. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll rub off. It does rub off. Even if you can't generate it yourself or you struggle to generate it yourself. 
I mean, I this is over the top. I guess my celebration is more days than not. During the week, I walk around with my championship ring on in the apartment for a that few minutes. Ca- that, like, counts. <laughs> that counts. That counts. <laughs> I think it counts. I've ever wanted. Um, but somebody asked me, "What um, are you going to have a, a launch party for the podcast?" And I just was like, "What? What? People do that? That's <laughs> awesome!" Because I haven't. I never celebrated the launch of Fat Fudge. I never really celebrated the transition of tech to what I do now. And I, and I want to get better at it. And part of it is surrounding myself, like you said, with people who are going to celebrate with me and celebrate me. Yeah. So I appreciate totally. that. Can I, can I suggest one other thing? Which is, 100%. which is put your, I've started doing this. God, it's so hilarious that I'm my age and doing this kind of thing. But you know what? Better late than never. Which is like send an email out to your friends or a group text, whatever it might be. I happen to think that group, like WhatsApp, chats or something like that are very, very helpful for this. Get some friends on board uh, or have some missive that you send out, which is like, hey, I've realized I suck at celebrating and I need to have more fun in my life or whatever. I would probably say that. And (laughs) just help me out. Like if you have, if you're celebrating and you think you could use an extra person, let me know, right? If Mm -hmm. there's something you're super stoked about, let me know. If I do something that I forget to celebrate, help me out and just put, put out the back call. People, people are are much more celebrating other people. Yeah. I'm great. I will, you will do something that doesn't seem like a big deal. And I am there. Like we're doing, we're going to every favorite oyster place in the Los Angeles to celebrate you. I have to get much better. So asking for help is something I'm actually pretty good at, but I haven't done with that. Haven't done that for the celebrating part. It helps. Pivoting real quick. I want to talk about legacy for a second. Because mm-hmm. when I met you, you'd asked me a couple of times what my perception of legacy is. And you asked me, what do you think I can do next to create a legacy? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what I said? I don't. You'll have to remind me. This is a okay. while back. I apologize. Um, how would you define legacy back then? And is it different than how you would define legacy today? Let's, if it's okay with you, tell me, tell me what you said, and then I will answer that. I can answer it. I won't change. I won't change my answer. I'm going to paint the room. Paint the room. <laughs> you asked me. You asked me that question, and your body was like face a little far away from me, and I was like, oh, "You're not going to really like my response." You're like, "No, tell me the response." And um, I go. Look, you're creating really amazing things, but legacy is really about Im- impacting the youth and impacting something bigger than yourself. And I think the the truest way to create legacy is to become a father. Mm-hmm. And you did not make eye contact with me. You let out the most frustrated exhale. It was this. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't respond. You let the conversation oh, wow. go there. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't surprise me. Um, that <laughs> that makes sense for for Tim at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. And I heard you recently talk about becoming a dad, at least on at least on one one podcast. And yeah. you have you created a legacy, and you've impacted youth, and you've impacted parents who are raising youth. So in a lot of ways, I rescind my response to you in saying that actually you have done that. Yeah. So. Yeah, so legacy at at that point, I think legacy, I I have stopped using that word just because I think it can get conflated with all sorts of things. So I've I've ended up using 
different phrasing for the same thing, but it, it's really something that's durable, something that lasts a long time. And I think a number of things have happened that have changed me or I have changed myself in the intervening years. But before I get to that, uh, but they're all interrelated, I'll explain the exhale. So why would I do that? <laughs> As someone who has suffered from extended depressive episodes, as someone who had it on the calendar, you know, I'm good at executing things on my calendar, had it on my calendar to commit suicide a year away from college. This was around, I guess, 99. And by a whole string of, of very lucky events, ended up not doing it. Uh, people can just Google my name and suicide and it'll pop right up, probably that blog post I wrote about it. But as someone who suffered from these things and came very close to the precipice. And as someone who saw a genetic component, I was very hesitant to consider having kids if I might, with my 50%, contribute to them experiencing the same thing. And that has been the main, that has always been the main hesitation and also a concern that I would not be a good dad for whatever reason, right? That I would screw it up on top of that. But the, the, the genetic piece was always the main concern. Mm. I have come to some peace with both of those over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, also because I've, I've better toolkits now and strategies for, I will use the word manage. I mean, managing, a lot of the experiences that used to cripple me or that I would allow to really, I mean, allow is a strong word, but that would spiral into dangerous corners. I feel like I can mitigate a lot of that, not perfectly. And then on the dad front, uh, what, what really changed my lens on that, this is going to sound ridiculous, but, um, I would say it's two things. Number one is having, uh, having a dog and really doing, I think, an excellent, excellent job mm -hmm. of training and raising mm -hmm. and caring for a dog, uh, the, which I'd never done. That was my you know, first time as an adult. She's lying right behind me, Molly. She just turned eight. And then second was spending time around my friend's kids and realizing, you know what? Actually, I think I think I'm pretty good at this. I'm not going to be great. I'm sure every parent screws up their kids, but I was like, you know what? I actually think that I could do a good job, not just having kids, right? I think a lot of people want to have kids, but they don't actually want to be a father, mother. They don't really want that set of responsibilities, but they like the idea of having kids, maybe due to societal pressure, biological pressure, combination, whatever. I didn't want to be that guy. In any sense that the word matters, legacy, I certainly think for me that means having kids. And furthermore, I think that it could be, and it might be, incredibly healing for me. Now, I'm careful uh, with that perspective because I don't want it to be any more selfish than it has to be. I mean, having kids is ultimately a, like a somewhat selfish decision. Like, you want to have kids, so you have kids. And... Uh, uh, so it's not like I'm having my kids so my kid can fix me. Like I really strongly believe one of the the better fathers I know said it's not their job to give you love. It's your job to give them love. So mm -hmm. if they're like mm -hmm. pissy and pissed off or like saying they hate you, like too bad. Like that's not their job. And at the same time, I do feel that in the process of raising 
little humans, I would probably experience some metabolizing and catharsis around a lot of the stuff that went really wrong for me as a kid. So I agree with you. And uh, if you were to ask me though, on the more conventional side of like legacy on say a professional level, I think it is almost ridiculous to even, I, I just, if, if we, if most people, yours truly included, like don't know the full name of Alexander the Great, uh, or like if people don't rem- <laughs> remember these historical figures who have lasted thousands of years uh, and created these like canonical works of art and literature that have stood the test of time. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost absurd for me to think that I would create anything in up in a, in a world where like every minute more footage is being uploaded to YouTube than was probably <laughs> uploaded in the first few years of it, its existence. I think it's, it's, I think it's kind of silly. I also think that leaving a, like a ton of money like to your kids is a terrible idea. I mean, maybe I'll change my my thinking on that, but which is part of the reason why I've been so proactive in the nonprofit stuff and the supporting of research and and so on. Uh, I think You're the reason re- why I tried mushrooms. Oh, you I said hope it- you, you said you try to talk people out of it. You tried very hard to talk me into it. And <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad. To, uh, hopefully, it wasn't didn't turn out poorly. Um, it did not turn out poorly. Yeah, yeah. I find you know I find that. It is true that I talk most people out of it. Uh, any any use of psychedelics, and I mean they're very powerful, and and there are adverse events and bad things happen. However, I do think that, especially once, fingers crossed, things are reclassified and available through professionals that for people who experience, and I'm not saying this is you, but like in my case, right, a certain rigidity of like analytical self-talk, this is for me, right? And this is why this is also so helpful for say in some patient populations for certain subjects, treatment resistant depression, potentially chronic anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, like what do these things all have in common? And this is not a a neuroscientist perspective necessarily from a, say, neuroanatomical brain activity level, but they're all, I would say, characterized on some level by repetitive loops, which are thoughts and behaviors, but certainly start with thoughts. And I think that psychedelic-assisted therapies are very, can be very helpful as a pattern interrupt for that so that you can also observe not just live those stories like i am depressed but you can actually look at the stories and beliefs and behaviors that contribute to that self-identification right right? only keep what's yours yeah only keep what's yours you know there there are are a lot of different ways to get there too i I feel that ultimately what we're going to realize is a lot of the tools that seem to have outsized Impact. For instance, I'm very interested in in brain stimulation right now of different types, particularly something called accelerated TMS. And there are a number of scientists doing very good work, like Nolan Williams at Stanford. Uh, people can look it up. There's there's one protocol called the Saint protocol, although they've abbreviated that to SNT, I believe. Uh, that a lot of these tools are going to act in somewhat similar ways that get disproportionate disproportionately uncommonly 
large positive effect size, right? The, 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 so you don't have to use psychedelics. I mean, there are other ways to, I would say, touch on these things. Meditation certainly works for some people. You have, uh, I mean, one that doesn't really get talked about, but I, th and it's, it's challenging for some folks, folks to cultivate, but I think lucid dreaming work and training for lucid dreaming actually oh, yeah. touches on oh, yeah. a lot of sort of similar, uh, similar real estate on the tapestry of experience. So yeah. Do you lucid dream? Uh, if I train for it, I do. Yeah. It's, it's a trainable skill. There's, there's for me, uh, I mean, there are some unusual aspects to it, but there's, there's a great book. It's older. There may be better ones now called exploring the world of lucid dreaming by Stephen Laberge, L A B E R G E. I ended up getting that book in high school and took it really seriously. And uh, if you go through the exercises involving cultivating dream recall, which is really just a matter of repetition and a handful of other tools like reality checks, which are these exercises that you implement based on pattern identification in your dream details that you use while you're awake. Uh, you can get to the point, or I should say I got to the point where in college I was inducing, I would say senior year of high school and then at certain points in college and I could induce lucidity every night. I mean, I could have a lucid dream every night. Um, in some cases, multiple times a night. These days, unless I put in the training, which is pretty, for me, time-consuming and energetically consuming, then uh, hit, hit or miss, right? Like, if I've had one lucid dream in the last three months that I can... Uh, I almost always remember if I have a lucid dream. So I would say, yeah, once in the last two to three months. And I'm just being lazy, not doing the exercises. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a lucid dreamer. Um, sometimes it could be a lot, um, but I tend did to. That, did that just come naturally for you? Mm -hmm. Something that happens mm -hmm. pretty frequently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I'm like, I I don't want I don't want to do this right now, body. I just want to watch the movie. I don't want to I don't want to direct the movie. I just want to watch the movie. And for people um, who don't have any idea what the hell we're talking about, lucid dreaming is in simplest terms, when you are, when you become aware that you are dreaming. So in the midst of a dream, you become aware of the fact that you are dreaming, at which point you can modify your environment and experience. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. It's really, really cool. I think if somebody has not done the work or the tools or experience with it, it can be a little frightening too. A dream within a dream yeah. <laughs> kind of vibe. So caribou day. <laughs> caribou day the day <laughs> will the live in infamy <laughs> <laughs> so i think it's interesting because that is the the first obviously i met you at that event but first time i really met you you came into the kitchen and you said it's almost like you were called to give me this book you said mm -hmm. i have a book i want to give you and i'm going to put it in your bag and you give me no other context <laughs> that was it yep if I didn't think you were weird already from the caribou legs <laughs> to oh, the yeah. teepee in the living room. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm weird. Very weird. <laughs> and I do want to say real quick on the topic of uh, fatherhood and the way you hold space, something that if no one's ever told you, you are such a thoughtful person. And for me, you are such you were such a soft place to land. Like I always felt comfortable having conversations with you because you have a natural I want to protect the people around me vibe. There's a gentleness to you. And the reason why I took the, the psychedelic tip seriously is because you are thoughtful when you are saying something. People, I mean, I listen because I know it's nothing is flippant. Everything is measured. So you're going to be an excellent dad. Thank you. Should you go down that path? Yeah, thank you. Um, 
So you gave me this book. I went home, opened it. The book's called Power. The author is Jeffrey Pfeiffer. What's special is it's got your notes and things you highlighted in here. And that's pretty priceless. I'm like, ooh, inside the brain of Timothy Ferris. Um, (laughs) First, I want to ask... Do you remember do you remember this book? Maybe you're not giving it to me, but do you remember reading this book? Yeah, I do remember that book. And uh I really enjoy I don't do it that often. I mean, there are a few books that I have lots of copies of at home that I give to guests or friends who come through, but I don't give books otherwise as gifts that often. But occasionally I do. That was one of the occasions. Wait, why? Why was that? Well, because, <laughs> because, well, yeah, well, I mean, the, I'm piecing it together sort of like memento style because I mean, it was obviously mm-hmm. a long, a long time ago, but, uh, my, what I suspect is that you were telling me about your recent departure from corporate America, right? You're charting your own path, mm-hmm. likely mm-hmm. going to have multiple forks in that path. And mm-hmm. I think the study of power and influence is very, helpful, not because I want to become powerful in the sense of, you know, Vladimir Putin type powerful, but that if you want to persuade, if you have ideas to convey, in other words, you're going to be selling these ideas, it is helpful to understand or to at least study how things seem to spread, how some people appear to develop the ability to act as like hubs of a network in causing change in people's thoughts, beliefs, behaviors, and so on. So that's probably, uh, I would, I would imagine why I gave you that book. There are others that would be helpful for something like that. But if, if that was something, and it seems like it was probably something I had recently finished, and it was fresh on my mind that mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, okay. This seems like a match, like playing, uh, <laughs> book, book Yenta and bringing that yeah. one in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some advice in here that I took and some advice that I should have taken over the last 10 years. And you mentioned Enneagram in, in one of the podcasts I listened to, and I'm, a, I'm an eight, and truth, I need to learn how to say less. And there's things in here about, <laughs> about not causing unnecessary, unnecessary uh, conflict. And I'm like, what, what do you mean by that? We're just getting oh, to the truth here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just getting warmed up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's notes on the front that I don't know. I don't know your, your note-taking methods, but it seemed like a concept for a book or ideas for a book. And it's just so interesting, again, getting caught up on a lot of what you've been talking about. Um, to where I feel like I need to give this back to you. Th- these notes might be useful for you. But yeah. the notes in here is it says book, colon, the hero's farewell and the price of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, this is, uh, is fun and timely for me to revisit because I mean, that was decade plus or a decade ago. And these are things that are still very present for me. So what, what I imagine that meant, I mean, if I put book, then almost certainly those are book ideas. I was literally, I'll tie this together with a conversation I was just having with a friend walking to get coffee last week. And we were talking about podcast dream guests. And I said, honestly, the people I'm most interested in, or some of the people I'm most interested in probably wouldn't do the podcast. So there's a little bit of not playing hard to get, but there's an allure there. And the category is people who 
at the top, right? Rocky Marciano style, sort of exit stage left. The people who are seemingly at the top, that they've summited, they're they're as they're they're as poised to do huge things as possible, and they say, I'm climbing, I'm climbing up the wrong ladder, or just simply I'm done for now. And they step out. I think, you know, for a long time, Chappelle was an example of that. There are certain actors who make me think of that archetype, like Daniel Day-Lewis, for instance. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many others. So the, the, the farewell piece, I would imagine, is related to that, right? Not necessarily people who feel driven, because I think we often, I mean, I, I certainly, when I was like my peak workaholic mode, I was doing it to avoid, subconsciously, to avoid feeling other things. Right. And uh, doing it to sort of provide myself with a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that I could use as this false promise of like joy and glory and all the good things when (laughs) I'm done. But in the meantime, I'm going to suffer and do everything the hard way and this, this, and this. So I think the, the, is it the hero's farewell? Is that what I wrote? Um, Mm -hmm. That that would probably refer to that. People who have really done. One of the harder things that I think, and there are many hard things that people have to endure and experience. I'm not saying on Maslow's hierarchy of needs that this is hard in the same way, but it is rare that people, even when they realize they're in the wrong game, when they're poised to do really big things, make a lot of money, become really famous, multiply whatever it is, who step out and pause for a period of time or exit. So that's probably that. And then the price of power I was probably, and again, this is, this is speculation on my part, but books on power tend to present power as this incredibly useful change agent. Right. So it's, it's the books are about how to become powerful. Right. <laughs> it's like if you're reading a book about how to make a million dollars, ostensibly the, the implicit or explicit idea is that money is good and helpful. Right. But in, <laughs> as I have spent more time around people with lots of what we would consider power, lots of what we would consider wealth, the both can be so incredibly distorting and corroding that I really wish there there were more books that talked about both sides, not just the negative, because if someone's like, if I wrote a book called, you know, why power sucks, like number one, nobody's going (laughs) to cry tears over the powerful. Number two, it's just not the promise isn't there. Right. (laughs) So it would, but, but I, I think that that was probably a reflection and I write down most of my ideas with the expectation that I will do nothing with them. It's just to capture a fleeting thought so that it doesn't completely uh, disappear into the ether. But those, those are my best guesses on, on both. I like the, the price of power piece. I mean, I like both of those pieces tremendously. I'm very careful about what projects I take on, even if they'll help me short term, because I don't want to go in certain directions or get locked into a success that would betray my moral compass. But also the price of power. I have been around and worked with some of the most powerful elite people in the world that I don't talk about. And I have walked away from 
projects with some of the most powerful elite people in the world because I pay attention to how power has impacted them and who they become and how they use that power to create good, evil, evil or nothing at all. And so I've, I've had a different perspective because doing nutrition and food and cooking is very personal. And I just, you know, I observe, I take notes. So the, that's really interesting to me because I've seen both sides. And when I say both sides, I also feel like if you have that response or if you have the ability to create that positive change, but you use power just for personal gain, even if you're not hurting anyone else, I feel like you're missing the mark, um, yeah. which I don't know if I, that's the right thing to say. But maybe that's your next book. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. I know you're really into poetry right now, yeah. which I love. Mm-hmm. I would love to, not necessarily your favorite poem, but if I say poem right now, what's a poem that comes to mind? Ooh. Uh, I have one friend who's so good at memorizing poetry. I mean, the one that, that comes to mind, I'll just pull it up, is Mary Oliver. I think it's Wild Geese. I love Mary Oliver. Yeah. So this one, this one really resonates so strongly for me. And it's not that long. I could read it if you like. I would love that. The first five lines are really what sticks in my mind the most. And it's, it's pretty easy to remember. But I think first for someone, I'm speaking about myself, who is often... Certainly when I was younger, I mean, lots of self-loathing, lots of viewing myself as like, well, I'm a vehicle for, say, performance or doing good things for other people. But like, I suffer. That is what I do. I'm just going to continue suffering. And that is that. That is how the story is written. Uh, Or even going beyond that and saying, if I'm not suffering, like I'm not being an appropriate vessel for whatever I'm supposed to do. I'm not taking on enough. So this is helpful, I think, as a reminder that there is another path. There are other options. There are alternatives to that. So here we go. This is Mary Oliver Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So that is wild geese. and I love that. I never read poetry ever until, yeah, I would say probably right after we met. That's when I started reading poetry. And there's a really good, it's nine minutes long TED talk, but it's really more of a presentation, not on stage, by Ethan Hawke on creativity. And there's Oh, a I seg- love that. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And there's a segment mm-hmm. on poetry and like, who cares about poetry? And it's like, well, you don't care about poetry until your parent dies or you get your heart broken and you wonder, am I alone? Has anyone ever felt this before? How do I get through this? Or when you have the converse, you know, the the birth of a child, you know, how do mm-hmm. I capture this? Has anyone ever felt this before? And it's at those times, and uh, everyone should, should really look it up. It's very easy to find that this type of distilled 
emotion and wisdom is potent in particular. Mm -hmm. And so I mm -hmm. very accidentally came across a book of poetry by Hafez, H-A-F-I-Z, when I was like spiraling out at rock bottom. It must have been in sort of the 2012 to 2014 period, probably 2012, 2013. And I was in a bookstore, and I just basically I dragged my hand across the books and just picked a book out at random, and it was Hafez poetry, and I opened it up, and some of his poetry is fucking hilarious, and I was like, oh, this isn't the poetry I had to read in school. This is great, actually. This guy's a riot, and uh, thank God for that. It really opened up a whole new world of sort of shared experience, and it makes it does make me at least feel less alone in feeling what I feel. I love that. The other part of the first season of my podcast is who am I going to become in this process? How am I yeah. going to develop? And mm -hmm. so my first 25 guests are people that know me and who are world-class at being interviewed and interviewing. So I'm asking everyone, tell me what I did right. Tell me what I can improve upon and tell me your overall experience having me be in this seat, being green. You did a great job preparing. I mean, you asked questions from our shared time together, the first meeting and so on. You took me on a trip down memory lane, which is actually very fun, I think, for a lot of guests to experience. So if you can bring something up and they're like, oh shit, yeah, I do remember that. That's crazy. <laughs> it's fun for the person sitting in my seat. So I had a really good time. I thought you did a great job. I, I, I don't have a whole lot of, I, I don't have, I, I really don't have a critique. I think you covered a lot of ground. What I would say as a recommendation, which is different from a critique, is just do a lot of experiments. Okay. Don't get too set in the format of the show too early. Definitely have yeah. a few things, have a few pieces, Scooby Snacks, that your listeners can depend on, right? Because they're coming mm -hmm. to you for some type of theme, some type yeah. of de deliverable. But around those few things really explore and play around with the format, try different things. Uh, and yeah. that will help for you not to end up potentially if it's successful, which certainly I hope it is. And I would suspect it will be that you feel like you cannot deviate from some very tightly constrained 100%. format. And uh, yeah, that's, 100%. that. Is, that is that is something I strongly recommend, and I think you'll have a lot of fun with it. I think uh, I, I mean you're you're clearly well well suited and well prepared for it. So I, I'm excited for you. I think you're going to have a blast. It's been fun, and it's a variety show. There's a whole fun piece of it where I have like Sesame Street music come in. It's like the performance <laughs> highlight of the week is brought to you by because I don't want to get I'm I am tired of talking about gut health, but I also know yeah, people yeah. want to know how I program people, so I've yeah, left yeah. it open in that way. So, mm -hmm. um, but again, thank you. You're most welcome. And I'll give you just a, a high five on Sesame Street. I literally <laughs> was gifted. This is this is just like you have your ring. This is not the mm -hmm. same thing at all. But I have a <laughs> season one staff Sesame Street jacket that a writer wore who went to work and helped create the main characters in season one of Sesame Street. So I have that 30 feet away from me as good juju for writing inspiration. <laughs> That is special. That is really special. Yeah. 
You've made it to the Performance Spotlight, aka Free Game, the segment where I highlight something that you can apply as soon as you're done listening to this episode. This is my attempt to add to your repertoire in a way that I like to call habit stacking, where instead of trying to change everything overnight, I share one good habit upon another with each episode and let you design the stack of happy habits that work for you. Today's spotlight is black seed oil, also known by its scientific name, Nigella sativa. This is my forever MVP ingredient and has been a staple since childhood. The history of black seeds as a potent medicinal remedy dates as far back as to the pharaohs of ancient Egypt and was known to cure anything but death. Super dramatic, I know. And I am not making that claim, but let me share with you what I do know and why I use it personally and with my clients. Its nutrient profile includes being a solid source of manganese, copper, iron, and phosphorus, but it is most touted for containing thymoquinone, a potent anti-inflammatory compound. I've been working on a specific formulation stack for a product, but until it is perfect, I'm just going to keep sharing about how I think everyone should consider adding this to their rotation. From afar, you might think they look like black sesame seeds, but if you look more closely, they're actually much shorter and have a ragged edge. Looks a little bit like a small rock. I want to prepare you for the flavor profile because it is strong. A cross between oregano, pepper, and onion, and it doesn't taste that great. The oil, I like to compare it to motor oil if I'm being honest. So if you're going to use it as a supplement, be prepared or dilute it or take it with a spoon of raw honey, which this combination does hold its own benefits, by the way. I'm going to quickly run through some of the potential benefits here, which include what I mentioned about it being a potent anti-inflammatory, so think joint pain relief, and it's been studied for improving athletic performance and recovery, but it has also shown benefits for keeping your immune system strong as an antiviral and antibacterial agent, as well as improving gut health, and you can even use it topically for improved skin and hair. I'm going to include a link in the show notes so you can read more about this. But in the meantime, here are some ways that I use it from a culinary standpoint using a food first approach. You'll find black seeds in the recipe for my preserved lemons in my gut reset. This is a family recipe. You can throw the seeds in salads, your scrambled eggs and soups and smoothies, and it pairs well with citrus, with garlic, with onion, with mango, things like avocado and strawberries. From a supplement standpoint, you can use the oil straight up or add it to tea or coffee, or again, throwing it into smoothies. My athletes use this straight up like a supplement or we put it in their morning tonics. Now, I do want to remind you when it comes to the potential benefits of foods, I always encourage that you jump into a little more of your own research as well as checking for contraindications because one person's superfood can be another person's kryptonite. Be sure to tune in to every episode of Eat, Play, Crush. So if you come away with anything, it is at the very least something from this particular segment that can improve your life. And that is it on today's episode. Thanks so much for hanging out. Your time and attention never goes unappreciated. 
If anything in today's show stood out to you, I encourage you to share it to social and tag me. That is how you can help a little independent show like mine grow. And of course, rate, review, and subscribe to Eat Play Crush wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you want to follow me, I'm at Paleo Chef on social media or the show at Eat Play Crush. If you want to stay in touch via my newsletter or get your hands on the gut reset, visit eatplaycrush.com. And until next time, be well, do good, and trust your gut.